we have descended into right versus wrong, polarised thinking, very separate black and white thinking. And that's not how life works. It's not how the human spirit responds to the planet. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Have our politics and personal relationships reached an inflection point? And is there a way to harness our anxiety into a force for positive change? Today I'm in conversation with Australian author Sarah Wilson. Her new book, This One Wild and Precious Life challenges us to reach beyond our boundaries, to go to the edge and live wildly awake. I'll be back in a moment with Sarah Wilson. My guest today is international best-selling author, Sarah Wilson. Sarah Wilson's latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, examines our fractured world. In a time of personal and collective anxiety, Wilson's insights challenge us to push beyond our boundaries and to consider community realities. This is a rare book, richly textured, addressing big issues, globalism, racism, and climate change. It is also deeply personal. The book is an invitation to assess our place in a confusing world. And if this name sounds familiar, it is because Wilson's work has been credited with redefining the mental health genre. Her books are sold in more than 50 countries. She is a former editor of Cosmopolitan Australia, host of MasterChef Australia, and the founder of IQuitSugar.com, a program that has seen millions worldwide break their sugar addiction. Wilson is also an obsessive hiker and spent eight years traveling the world with one bag. Joining me from Sydney, Australia to help us make sense of the world is Sarah Wilson. Sarah, welcome to Real Fiction. Oh, thank you for having me, Laurie. It's a very interesting time to be talking to each other from opposite ends of the world. Indeed it is. And, you know, it was striking to me that you're based in Australia, you've been all over the world, but this new book that you've written, again, it's titled This One Wild and Precious Life. You actually spent a lot of time here in the United States, and it proposes a kind of way to live wildly awake, which I want to hear what that means from, from your words, and how to heal emotional and political divides. So I thought maybe we can start with a rather broad topic, which is human connection at the community level and on a global scale. As you just alluded to, we had a very interesting, challenging week in Washington, D.C., in which a hallmark of American democracy and the peaceful transition of power was threatened. And I think when a symbol like that in people's minds is threatened, it's it brings on a sense of vulnerability. And I'd 
love to hear from you. Um, as the world kind of watched this, bore witness to this, this new fracture, what do you think people were witnessing? Yeah, I think, as you say, I think there it was highly symbolic, really, um, this sort of totem, isn't it, of, of all things um, Western democracy and to see it being invaded almost like it was the 1800s, you know, and it, it was very, very potent. Sitting on the other side of the world, I got very emotional watching it. I think it affected people in um, Western democracies around the world, really, because it is so symbolic. But I think it was in many ways, and I, I hope I'm not overstepping the mark because I'm obviously on the other side of the world witnessing all of this, but I've spent, as you say, a lot of time in the US and have a lot of friends over there and work colleagues. I, I feel that it's almost, and I've seen the editorial um, pieces coming out of the New York Times, etc., saying this was inevitable. It, it, everything was building to it. It's not like um, many of us are that surprised that something like this happened at that juncture. And in some ways, I feel like it was required to rupture what has been a very difficult time, a fragmentation, a polarisation, which is building. It's, it's, there's been a crescendo and something, something fairly dramatic had to be the turning point. And speaking to a number of people who've got friends and relatives who, in fact, or, who, or even direct uh, friends and relatives who who voted for Trump were big supporters. There's been a turning point. This was overstepping a mark, um, I think, for a lot of Americans. And I think it's it is going to get us all to pause and think about what it is that we hold valuable in our political and social framework. Um, it has the matrix of our ethical thinking has been fragmented, but we've been disconnected from it for a whole bunch of reasons. And it's and it's not just Trump. Um, it's not just um, America. It's not just democracy. It's been happening worldwide. So I almost feel that it was the you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the point of inflection, uh, the point at which we now perhaps have a chance of coming together and going, okay, now we need to change direction. And uh, pendulums swing, don't they, throughout history? And they go from one extreme to another and we have to, as humans, kind of comprehend it and find a better way when it swings too far to the left or the right. I think you're quite right. The The pendulum does swing. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, it goes from one polar to another polar, and we can't quite seem to get into a healing middle. But one thing that really struck me um, in your book, uh, as this uh, event was unfolding, is the fact that we struggle having interpersonal communications with each other, interpersonal engagement on subjects where two people fundamentally disagree. And I'll, I'll use one of the examples in your book. There have been some moments when you've uh, stood next to people in a cafe and they're ordering a, uh, a coffee with a plastic lid. It's a single-use plastic. You are a passionate advocate for healing our climate issues. And instead of sparking a fight, you have evolved to have these sort of radically neutral, candid conversations that lead to breakthroughs. 
Oh, it's such a funny example because you know what, Laurie? Here I am in Sydney, Australia. I live right on Bondi Beach. Um, it's summer, just to give some context to you all over there. And I just went to the coffee shop with my, you know, keep cup, my my glass mug that I take to my coffee shop to get a coffee in anticipation of this conversation and had exactly the same conversation with a sort of a <laughs> middle-aged man who just got out of the surf and he'd ordered a, you know, a black coffee and he asked for two cups, you know, because he didn't want mm. his fingers to burn and I said oh um I said oh how are you going and you know was the surf good you know <laughs> and what I did was what I try to do is I do try to have a conversation where I really um I do I ask the question hey you know you need to get one of these and the, there's two there's two sort of mantras that go through my head because when you work in the climate space or in any space where you're finding yourself going oh my goodness why are these people not getting it and this is happening around the world right we're, we're just how can we sit on this planet watch the same kind of news input and still react so differently and I've got two phraseologies that I work with one of them is I get it I use this in my head all the time I get it I get it middle-aged man who's just come out of the surf who who perhaps hasn't had um, access to all the information so I will have the conversation from a space of look I get it you know it's difficult or I get it and I have that going through my head and he reacted really really well he said oh yeah right okay maybe this will be my 2021 um you know sort of resolution and a, a sort of a friend or an acquaintance a neighbor walked past and he said oh is Sarah hassling you about <laughs> takeaway coffee cups <laughs> and I said he said yeah but I'm, I'm gonna try and I said see but the other thing that I do and this is a I think this is a wonderful visual and it stood the test of time and you may recall this from the book I referred to that beautiful beautiful roomy poem and it's, it, it has the phrase in it, um, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And I think that that sums up where we need to head as, as a, a planet, as a, as a world. Um, we have descended into right versus wrong, polarised thinking, very separate black and white thinking. And that's not how life works. It's not how the human spirit responds to the planet. We are far more nuanced. We, we prefer sitting in grey. We Life is uncertain. We need to be able to sit within all different, um, you know, shades of grey on the spectrum. And so uh, we need to go and meet in that field. And if we can find a way to meet in that field in any scenario, then the conversation shifts radically. So the field that I created, to use that example, is a field um, where it's not right and wrong. It's just about let's do this better together. I really like that image of coming to the field, coming to the middle and letting our own biases just relax for a minute. That brings me to a question that you address in the book, which has to do with, with those connections. And it's kind of a paradox because you argue that the more connected we are, the less connected we have become. Yeah, yeah. Look, technology can be a wonderful thing. Um, we point the finger at technology for a range of evils, right? We, we, we're blaming all kinds of things on technology, especially stuff to do with our children. But um, really, technology only ever enables. And the question, the more beautiful question, and you know that I use that that term throughout the book is that there's always a more beautiful question we can ask. The more beautiful question to ask here is what is it enabling? What's it enabling at the moment? So look, on the one hand, 
technology has been required to get through this pandemic. It's, you know, I mean, here we are talking on the other side of the world. Uh, we can have, a, you know, a, a wonderful conversation. So it, it can enable some wonderful stuff. However, it can also enable a lot of small, what I call small human behaviour, when we crave to be our big human selves. Um, so small human behaviour is where we actually we have a tendency to be incredibly lazy as humans, right? We will avoid discomfort. It's an evolutionary principle. However, we've always had circumstances and maybe initiation ceremonies and sort of rites of passage and um, just life events that have ensured that we've had to rise to our big human selves. And that's, that's the self, the type of um, human that fights for the collective, that fights for that those moral and ethical principles. Um, it's hard. We have to go into discomfort. We have to go to what I call our edge to, to do that. Um, but we live in a culture where technology enables us not to have to do that. So we can stay in our little cocooned spaces with, um, you know, social media in one hand, the TV remote in the other. We have uh, takeaway food arriving at our doorstep. We barely have to interact with the world. That is what we have enabled or we have allowed technology to enable in us. And that is a very small existence. And it sends us into a state of acedia, which is a Greek word which means listful slothfulness. And acedia tends to come about at times in history when life just gets a little bit too comfortable. And that's what technology has enabled over the last 20 to 30 years. I think I read something that said 90% of technological advancements over the last 30 years have been geared towards um, us having to uh, been able to avoid discomfort, like ensuring that we don't have to wait for anything, we don't have to sit in the unknown, all of those things that built resilience in the human spirit and saw us rise to our better selves, they've been denied. They've been uh, we've been cocooned from those experiences. So that's what I see as the fundamental issue with technology. You're describing a challenge that we need to self-regulate. And in that process of pulling back, you're, you're challenging us to ask better questions, as you put it, ask more beautiful questions. And I want to hover here for just a minute because I absolutely love this in the book. And there's one that I highlighted that just jumped out and it's, do you want to be right or to love? Yeah, it's a really interesting question to ask. And I think especially um, as we sit here in January 2021, right, um, with everything that's going on in the world, we are going to have to uh, really ask that question of ourselves at the moment to heal, I think. There's been some wrong stuff that's going on. But do we want to keep pointing fingers? Do we want to keep splitting ourselves from the other? Or do we want to find a way to live in love on this planet together? And I'd say most of us in our heart, would like the latter. How I came across it was interestingly, I had a work colleague um, I was working with on a big project and, you know, for want of a better word, I was thrown under the bus. Um, I had to take the fall for something um, that was pretty horrible. And, you know, you can sit there and swirl around in, well, she did this and, you know, um, pointing the finger and getting very worked up. And at some point my meditation teacher said to me, Sarah, do you want to be right or do you want to love? And and really, as you say, it was that stark and I chose the latter and so I invited this work colleague over for a glass of wine and I just called it out. I just said, I'm choosing love. I'm choosing our friendship. I'm choosing um, to just 
to humbly say, let's let it go and move forward because I love you, you know. And um, that was an incredible experience. And once I'd done it once, it became, I got such wonderful feedback, not from her necessarily, but just from, I don't know, just things fell into place for me where I was like, yes, this is how I want to live my life. And it helps me in encounters down at the coffee shop with people <laughs> in, <laughs> taking takeaway coffee, single-use cups. Um, but it, it helps in so many scenarios. I can keep my cool. I can keep my priorities and I can still make my point. My guest today is Sarah Wilson. She is the author of a new book, This uh, One Wild and Precious Life that was just released. So January is a traditional time of reset. And I mentioned in the introduction that um, a few years ago, you started uh, the movement, I Quit Sugar. And millions of people have followed on this journey. And what it does in this book uh, is part of the I mean, kind of your, the body of your life's work is draw a connection between the mind, body, and spirit. And th that's really how we have to approach life if we're going to be wildly awake and have the ability to listen to people. Why did you start that movement? And tell us a little something about what it can do to the human body and mind when we remove this white substance from our diet. Yeah, well, again, it's so interesting we're talking in January 2021 because it's exactly 10 years ago that I quit sugar. Um, it was January the 1st, you know, as many people uh, tend to do these things, that I, I decided to quit and it was for a newspaper column. I was still writing sort of, uh, you know, opinion pieces and I had a, a sort of column about different experiments in how to make life better and I was short of a topic. I'd been avoiding quitting sugar I knew I needed to do it because I've got an autoimmune disease and I'm sure many people listening um, probably have an autoimmune disease they're becoming quite common um, I had Hashimoto's to be specific and I'd got very very sick so I, I used the excuse that I had to sort of you know write something for the new year and I quit sugar and it was a very interesting experiment I tried it for two weeks and I felt better I got the results and so I just kept going and going and deep diving into the science, attending obesity conferences. I ended up in this sort of circle of endocrinologists and scientists uh, investigating all of this. But to answer your question, um, it's sort of interesting. I went from doing these this I Quit Sugar sort of series of books and the program, then moved on to a book about anxiety um, and I'm very open about this because I have indeed written the book about it first we make the beast beautiful um, I I have bipolar and I was first diagnosed while I was studying in Santa Cruz in California when I was 21 and then of course moved on to this book about sort of fragmentation the climate crisis etc they're all linked <laughs> people put go gosh you seem to have jumped all over the place but it is all a very similar journey um, so look sugar is an interesting one it is a substance that we assume to be fairly innocuous it just isn't it's um we were designed to to binge on sugar and be obsessed by it that should not come as any surprise to anyone out there um, and that's because it is the most effective source of instant fat on the planet so look it is part of the journey and for me personally I was at a point where I was apparently two weeks from heart failure. I was that sick with my autoimmune disease. I had to do something to get myself functional again. I hadn't 
worked properly. I'd, I, it's what caused me to leave my post as editor of Cosmopolitan at the age of 34. And I was too sick to work. I couldn't walk. I'd lost everything. I was living in a army shed in the forest in northern New South Wales here in Australia. And um, I just had to try everything I could. And so the sugar piece made a difference. I kept going and I just... The practices I applied with that then played out in my practices with the way I conduct my work and the way I conduct my life choices. And that is I need to get vigilant and deliberate. I can't get angry at the world. I can't blame myself either. Once I understand why things are as they are, once I unpack it and see it through a different lens, then I can be more forgiving and then I can move into action. What I found amazing as I was reviewing, again, the body of your work, which is um, in addition to this latest book, this One Wild and Precious Life, you just mentioned a moment ago, another book that was a huge bestseller, First We Make the Beast Beautiful. What are we missing in the calculation about anxiety? And what can it mean when we, when we go to the edge, which is something that you, you mentioned a lot in the, in the new book? Yeah, that's a really, that's an interesting correlation or connection to make. So look, with anxiety, we have tended to see it. Um, and I look into sort of both generalised and everyday anxiety that people, I think, around the world are feeling at the moment. And interestingly, um, that book's become the number one um, section on Amazon in the US at the moment. It's probably not that much of a surprise because the anxiety, I think, is massive at the moment. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Out, <laughs> I just found out that yesterday. But anxiety has been deemed in the last 30 years, or actually a little longer than that, it's, um, it's 40 years, um, as a disorder, as something that needs to be eradicated and masked um, and fixed with medication. And that's just been the culture that we have evolved into. However, it's not always been that way. And my book reframes anxiety as a necessary part of the human experience. And then there's those of us, um, I have OCD and I also have bipolar. And they exist in the same proportion of the population around the world. And that's a number of studies have shown this around about 1.4%. But what we, you know, what we can see when we look back um, through history and various um, studies have shown this is that they exist for a really important reason. They have generally existed to trigger um, action, to trigger uh, a sense that things are not right. Anxiety is our very beautiful mechanism to tell us we are not on the right track that things need to be addressed. And when we start to see it in that way, we can have better conversations around this topic. We can start to see it, as the title suggests, we can see this beast as a beautiful thing, a thing that can be used and, in fact, it can become what I call it a superpower because it can, lead, it can be the very thing that leads us to our better and more meaningful and deeper lives. So when you start to ask those questions, you have to be brave, you have to be very open because, yes, it can be easier to take a drug and to be told that you have a disorder and you need to be cocooned and you need to be sort of shut off from various experiences and, unfortunately, uh, we see this a lot at the moment. But, in fact, throughout history, we have seen that people are at their best when they have to go to their edge. And just as a case in point, and this is a little controversial, but I do stand by it. Um, and I talk about it in this one wild and precious life. Um, some of the most influential, impactful, wonderful 
leaders during difficult times in history have been bipolar and estimations are at 70%. So if you think of Winston Churchill, various wartime leaders, various very uh, zeitgeist shifting leaders, they have generally had some kind of anxious disorder. And it's the, their very uh, sensitivity that has enabled them to, to sort of see things with a broader perspective, to pick up on where the community's at, where their pain points are at, and then to make the brave decisions. You know, I think that this is something that we need to start to talk about and evaluate and that people listening to this who are feeling anxiety at the moment, to understand it's extremely understandable, it is perfectly uh, appropriate that we feel anxiety right now. And rather than berate ourselves for feeling that anxiety, instead to go, okay, what's it telling me? Where do I go from from here? Mm -hmm. Who can I talk to about this in a really upfront way rather than trying to um, get myself back to some kind of balance point where I'm normal like everybody else? And I have no doubt this is resonating with, with listeners just in general and at this moment in time. And uh, Sarah, I, I know there are people who want to, uh, want to try this, want to experiment, who are willing to say, all right, I have anxiety. I would like to, I would like to harness that superpower. So how do we do that? The pain that we're currently in is exactly the, the trigger the opening, the chasm that enables us to wake up. And so when you go to your edge, which is often what discomfort is, um, and we feel like we can go no further and we feel like we've got it all wrong, rather than descending into despair and hopelessness and overwhelm, I mean, what a radical concept to switch things around and go, no, this is exactly my starting point. This is where I'm at and this is where I'm going to now launch into new. I'm going to launch into fresh ideas. The, the point of this book, and again, it's the title is This One Wild and Precious Life, is that there are, um, there are messages, there are tools, there are actionable tasks that we can employ in our lives to live a richer, more fulfilling life. And the fact that anxiety can be a motivating emotion and a, a powerful emotion for positive change is reason enough to jump into the unknown, as, as you say. This one wild and precious life by Sarah Wilson. It's um, it's it's a it's a challenge. It's a challenge, and it is a hopeful challenge. It's just been wonderful to have you on the program, Sarah. It's been enlightening and such an education. I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, and it's pretty much why I write books is to have conversations like this one. So thank you. been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your podcast platforms of choice. Real Fiction airs each week on Wednesdays at noon. Thanks for listening.